0: Conspiracy show with Richard Seren from Zuma Radio AM 740.
1: Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. I hope wherever you are, you are keeping warm. I continue to get a lot of email about this opening theme, this piece of music you hear, as we roll into the program and Uh, I guess it's been nearly five years since Jeff Eden, a wonderfully talented composer and uh, the owner of Studio 8, uh, located, uh, I believe it's in the greater Toronto area, uh, approached me uh, and asked if he could compose an original piece of music for the program. And so that's it. That's Jeff Eden's uh, score, if you will. And uh, people want to know where they can get a hold of it. And I believe Jeff has posted it or uploaded it. It's on YouTube somewhere. And then, of course, uh, we have a, another theme that Jeff composed as well, so sort of the, the second hour theme, uh, for those of you who are able to hear the second hour. And uh, it is. It's, it's a wonderful piece of music, and uh, I'm always uh, interested to hear what you think of it. I was uh, hosting Coast to Coast uh, this past Friday and Saturday, and I had a great conversation with Tara MacIsaac. We're going to get her on this program. Uh, she's the Beyond Science reporter at the Epoch Times... Uh, which is an interesting little newspaper. You've probably seen it in the uh, newspaper boxes that line the uh, the sidewalks. They're in 35 countries, I believe, now, in 21 different languages. Anyway, we spoke on Coast about the human intention experiments of Dr. William Tiller at Stanford. And these experiments involve people sitting around a container of water, for example, and simply by focusing their intention on the water... They were able to alter the pH level. Now, that might sound somewhat mundane, but think about that. They're not adding anything to the water. Not, they're not touching the water. Simply focusing their thoughts, their human intention. And these are scientifically, these are repeatable results, these experiments. Tiller was the chair of the material, science, or material, yeah, material sciences uh, department at, at Stanford. He's a mainstream scientist uh, and then began studying human intention so these are repeatable experiments again human intention focusing on the water they could alter the pH level bring it up bring it down and then as we learned from Tara McIsaac William uh, Tiller has developed a a device it's called the intention host device uh, which can receive the human intention in other words it seems to record this human intention then the human subjects leave the room He plugs in, Dr. William Tiller does, plugs in this device, and it emits that human intention and has the same effect of bringing the pH level of the water up or down. Think about that for a moment. These are repeatable scientific experiments. The Power of Human Intention. Uh, Anyway, I bring that up just because I was just uh, blown away by uh, this information, and uh, I'm going to get to work on getting Dr. Uh, Tiller on the conspiracy show to discuss this further. Uh, It seems to me I spoke with him years ago, but it's been uh, a number of uh, years, so it's time to bring him back and get an update on this unbelievable story, because now he's using human intention with autistic children um, and uh, netting some positive results as well. Albert, the intern has uh, resolved some computer issues from last week. And once again, we're offering up another HOA, Hangout On Air. And if you want to watch the live stream, uh, go to my Twitter feed, at Richard Serrett, and find the tweet near the top of the Twitter feed. A lot of tease, a lot of alliteration there anyway. And uh, that, uh, that tweet will uh, refer to the HOA. All you do is you click on the, the YouTube link, and you are in. And uh, you'll uh, see me in studio Hello there, if, uh, you're, <laughs> if you're watching the stream. And uh, you won't see the, the guests, uh, but Albert has set up a slideshow relating to the subject matter, which you can also watch during the program. Uh, just a quick programming note, next week I'll be joined in studio by a special guest, our contest winner from Follow the Truth, our conference we held back in November, Dwayne Hickey. Uh, will be joining me for dinner Sunday night at a fine eatery just down the, the uh, road from the studio here. And then he'll join me in studio as my special guest host. And Dwayne also helped produce the show. Uh, so he uh, he selected or gave us some suggestions for guests and uh, they were just terrific suggestions. And uh, Albert sh- tracked them down. So joining us in the first hour next week will be uh, inventor John Searle, who is the creator of the Searle Effect Generator. And the claim is that the Searle Effect Generator, or or SEG, can produce zero-point energy. Uh, We'll also be joined by extraterrestrial disclosure activist, author, political commentator, and radio host, Elizabeth Trutwin. So, uh, that promises to be an excellent show. Uh, But tonight, and for the next 40 minutes or so, uh, we're going to delve into the supernatural. Uh, And this is a tale that uh, it goes back... 14 years now. It all began, and I am now cribbing uh, from the inside of the dust jacket of uh, this book called Clock Shavings. It all began in a dank basement in Denver, Colorado in the summer of 2001. A group of friends attempted to contact a dead French artist on the Ouija board as part of a research project about the Holy Grail. They were hoping to get to, uh, help, uh, to get help, rather, decoding an historic occult mystery pertaining to the royal bloodline of France. They had no idea they were opening a portal to hell. What followed was a 13-year adventure into the supernatural, trailing mysterious clues given to them from beyond the veil. And that group of friends that gathered before the Ouija board in Denver back in 2001 included my guest... Tracy R. Twyman is an American non-fiction author who writes about esoteric history and the occult. Her most well-known books include The Merovingian Mythos, Solomon's Treasure, and Money Grows on the Tree of Knowledge. Her latest book, as I mentioned, is entitled Clock Shavings. Tracy, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you?
2: I'm doing great, Richard. Thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it.
1: Thanks for being here. First of all, the origin of the uh, uh, the, the, the word or the term rather, uh, "clock shavings" is rather interesting, and I, I just to spend a, a few moments uh, talking about this because it's what I, from what I understand, it's based on a mistranslation of a Swedish term.
2: Yes, and you know what? Funny enough, I only discovered that really when a, a reader wrote into me after the book was published and explained to me what the term actually means.
1: Right, I read that, on I guess, on your blog post.
2: Right, right. Uh, yeah, so I discovered the deeper meaning of it uh, recently, but originally I just knew that it was, there was a reference to this in this anthropology book about witchcraft that came out in the 20s. It's called God of the Witches. The, the author is Dr. Margaret Alice Murray. And uh, the quote goes, The sweetest witches had a special rite, which which was obviously intended to impress ignorant minds. They were given a little bag containing a few shavings of a clock to which a stone was tied. They threw this into the water, saying, As these shavings of the clock do never return to the clock from which they are taken, so may my soul never return to heaven. So it's basically uh, part of a ritual where... Uh, I guess, I think this was a, a reference to a, a story about Swedish witches in about, I think, the 1600s from this book. So uh, they were they were saying that the Swedish witches used to have a ritual, you know, when they would have their witches' sabbaths, and uh, sometimes they would um, conjure up the goat god and actually make a pact with him. This is the... the um, Baphomet. The that would be Baphomet, would it? The devil. Right. Yes, yes. Uh, so... Um, you know, I'd, I'd seen this uh, quotation, which I thought was strange, because I'd never heard of clocks having shavings before, but I figured, well, maybe the metal, the gears grind out metal shavings, and maybe they were using those in the ritual somehow. Sure. And uh, it turns out, according to the, writer, the reader that wrote in, they pointed out that, well, in the Swedish language and in other sort of Germanic uh, origin languages, the word for a bell is glock. So it, it sounds very similar to glock and that, that's how this uh, this term ended up in that anthropology book. And this person wrote, not only with the knowledge of the, the uh, German and Swedish languages, but also it seems they had heard something about this ritual when they were children. This guy, this person who wrote in uh, said that he had heard about this witchcraft ritual, and what they're actually dealing with is the shavings of a church bell. Right. So he said that uh, Satanists even up until, you know, relatively recent times when he was a child, uh, would sometimes uh, sneak into churches and get the, the shavings of the clock, because apparently there's shavings uh, that, are, that come off when the bell is being tuned. Right. And I, you have to do that every so often, apparently. So these shavings with, uh, from the, the church bell would be saved, and uh, used in rituals in, in this manner, and, and uh, basically people would uh, use them to make a sort of declaration that um, I'm giving away my eternal uh, inheritance in heaven, and making a pact instead with the goat god. And, and so, yeah, that's what I use that in the book. Yeah, it, yeah it's uh, it's
1: yeah. fascinating, and and uh, obviously, yeah, when we're talking about these these bell shavings, and I understand uh, that a bell, and this is something I didn't know, uh, and I think I read this on your website, uh, part of your blog, that these. Uh, bells uh, are in, that are placed in churches, uh, at least in some orders, are almost go through the same baptismal ritual that a newborn child would go through. So that these shavings, yes. these shavings uh, perhaps uh, these shavings are taken from bells that have not yet been baptized. Uh, and so therein lies, I guess, sort of the occultic power uh, that are associated with these bell shav- shavings that would be used in some sort of uh, a satanic ritual, as you say. Right now,
2: and, yeah. I, yeah. I, when I when I chose that title for my book, I wasn't necessarily declaring that I have gone through such a ritual or that no, I've no, no, taken no. my own soul. But it's just uh, I, the material that we, we deal with in the book does get into very dark and. Um, uh, I guess satanic material. So Absolutely, yeah. it seemed like an appropriate title. It's a term.
1: great title, and, it's, and, uh, and the, the backstory <laughs> is fascinating. Um, now, listen. Let set Thank the you. stage for me uh, here. I, I mentioned, as I read from the inside of the dust cover, about this dank basement in Denver, uh, and uh, you gathered with some friends before the uh, the Ouija board. Uh, what's the? Mm-hmm. W- why were you seeking help from beyond the veil uh, regarding? Uh, you know, the uh, the mysteries of the Holy Grail. Let's start there.
2: Okay, well, back then I was publishing this magazine called Dagobert's Revenge that was really all about the subject matter that now people are more familiar with uh, because of the Da Vinci Code. And it's, it's about this bloodline in France that uh, purportedly goes back perhaps to Jesus, and perhaps Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene. There's these stories uh, surrounding this bloodline in France. It's the bloodline that became the first royal house in france so the
1: merovingians Merovingian, yeah yes the long-haired and, uh, frankish people
2: <laughs> yeah so i mean they were sacred kings in france uh back when they ruled and supposedly had um magical powers in their hair and um there's stories about how their uh, the progenitor of their bloodline was born of two fathers that he he had uh, a human father and then also, while his mother was pregnant, she also became impregnated a second time by a sea creature called a Tinotaur. And uh, in my research, I sort of got the idea that there's more to this story than just the uh, heretical tale that, that uh, you know, the bloodline goes back to Jesus and Mary Magdalene, which is what previous authors writing about this subject had theorized. Well, that's the whole mystique around this bloodline. That's why it's called the bloodline of the Holy Grail. And there's actually secret societies, mystical societies, all dedicated to the mysteries of this bloodline, which actually connects not only to the bloodline of France, but also royal bloodlines all over uh, Europe.
1: All right. Listen, uh, Tracy, we'll take a time out. We'll come back and we'll continue to delve into this 13-year supernatural adventure. Okay. Find out more about the, uh, the Holy Grail and who this individual was that you contacted from beyond the veil. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. Uh, Tracy Twyman is here. Clock Shavings is her new book. And we were uh, talking about the Merovingians, who were this, uh, this uh, the rulers of uh, the Franks, uh, which later became France, uh, sort of in the Middle Ages. And uh, it has been long uh, sort of part of legend that they were the descendants of... Uh, the bloodline of Christ, a part of the bloodline of Christ. And and that's interesting because it's recently this whole discussion, you mentioned the Da Vinci Code, and which is sort of all about that. It's been given new currency because of uh, a new book out by uh, Simka Jakubowicz, The Lost Gospel Decoding the Ancient Text that Reveals Jesus' Marriage to Mary the Magdalene. And mm-hmm. um, not that, you know, that's where we're necessarily going, debating that. Um, but so this was, and this, this idea of a holy grail uh, I mean, it has two meanings. There is the chalice, of course, that, that uh, Christ used supposedly at the Last Supper, uh, but then it becomes sort of a, a metaphor, I guess, the chalice containing the blood, the bloodline of, of Christ. Is that the idea?
2: Well, that uh, was an interpretation that I would say was promoted by most Grail researchers, and I don't necessarily reject that interpretation. Okay. I think that, the from my research, it seems like it's very multifaceted indeed, and... Uh, ultimately, we came up with the idea that the the grail symbol is really one of the oldest symbols and uh, probably represents the greatest um, sacred treasure in the history of humans. And uh, this is because our research, and I say we, I mean, my husband, Brian, at the time was part of the research team. Also, there were some other people involved. Uh, we formed an organization that we refer to in the book called the Ordo at Exclus. It's basically a, a, a club that we came up with, dedicated to researching this topic. And our research pointed at a at a older origin to this bloodline and the mystique around it than just Jesus. That might have been part of the story, but it seems like it also goes back actually to the uh, pre-Sumerian uh, civilizations and to these. Uh, fallen angels, or nephilim, or watchers that uh, other people write about it. You know, other people think perhaps they're uh, space aliens or something. Right. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure if they are or not, but definitely it seems like this.
1: The Anunnaki. Um, right. This
2: group of people, this group of superhumans, really uh, seems like in legend you can find it throughout uh, all sorts of different cultures. They seem to point to this extra human origin for the human royal bloodlines and for the early civilizations of humanity. Okay, so in in pursuit uh, of this... that's that's sort of what we were researching at the time. Right.
1: So what led you to then this dank basement in Denver, and sitting in front of a Ouija board, looking for answers to this mystery of the grail? Why a Ouija board?
2: Well, I think at the time we were writing about Jean Cocteau, because he was... This is a French artist who's dead now. He died in the 60s. Did most of his work in the 40s through the 60s.
1: The great French poet. He was
2: poet. A, a, a poet and an artist and a filmmaker and purportedly he was uh, one of the grandmasters, one of the l- most recent grandmasters really of this group called the Priory of Zion, which they talk about in the Da Vinci Code. And what this is is the French secret society that's dedicated to these mysteries of the uh, royal bloodline of France and the Holy Grail symbolism. So uh, w- we were going on the theory that, well, maybe the Priory of Zion really does have some insight or secrets into the mysteries of the Holy Grail, and maybe Jean Cocteau would know about that. And the thing is that Jean Cocteau was known in his lifetime to have participated many times in seances, and he very much believed yeah. that you could talk to the dead.
1: Now, Victor was Hugo thought, was you know, also a. To... Was Victor Hugo and, and, and people like Salvador Dali, were they also uh, members of this group?
2: You know, Victor Hugo is one of the grandmasters listed also, actually, right in front of right before uh Cocteau. and they were friends also and in fact did séances together so yes uh, i mean he fits right in right in with the story here um and but yeah I, we were fascinated by Jean Cocteau's work we thought there was a lot of secret symbolism in it perhaps uh, that could en- enlighten our uh, research but it needed more we, we were having a hard time deciphering it we we thought we needed more um insight basically something something that maybe the other researchers we were competing with wouldn't have access to, something they wouldn't think of. And You certain, wanted to you know, get Let's it... Let's just try the Ouija board.
1: And get the information right from the horse's mouth, so to speak.
2: Exactly, exactly. And you know what? The f- funny thing is it basically just worked right away. We immediately got uh, a response. I had never really did, uh, gotten any response from a Ouija board, and of course I hadn't really tried it since I was 12. You know, I was uh, about 24 years old when I when I did this, uh, this story that we're talking about, trying to contact Jean Cocteau. But I hadn't done anything with a Ouija board since I was a little girl, and I had never gotten any response. But this time it uh, worked immediately, and <coughs> we got some interesting results, and it started us off on this, this quest that just got weirder and weirder as it went on.
1: And, and so uh, tell me, I mean, did you contact uh, a Cocteau?
2: How did we contact what
1: well, no did you and and what what oh yeah, and what were the questions and what were the uh, some of the the replies?
2: well, it started off with just you know are you there uh really got a response to that and then I, I was asking him some of the more detailed questions about his artwork some of the the uh, codes that we thought were were in the artwork and uh really, we got a response, but it was kind of difficult to work with the results we were getting, because he had a hard time speaking in English, and what he kept saying over and over again was that he um, he, was, he said, I am blocked for you at one point. It was one of the more clear messages we got. I am blocked for you. So he kept saying that he was having a hard time communicating. Um, and he also kind of told us that we needed to talk to someone else. He said, see the sun. And for a while we thought this was referring to something in one of his paintings, and eventually... Uh, we figured out he was referring to the sun as someone else. And it turned out that the sun was another symbol or a term for this figure, uh, Cain. And I'm talking about Cain in the Bible. Cain was actually one of the figures that we were doing a lot of research about.
1: The Cain that slew Abel. uh,
2: Yeah, the the Cain that killed Abel. Also, there's quite a lot written about the idea that maybe he was actually a uh, major figure in the ancient world, sort of the pre-Diluvian world, that, um, you know, a lot of the details may have been forgotten in history, but basically the the theory, and we were researching this at the time, the theory is that Cain was actually a king, uh, that there's there's other uh, characters with a very similar name to Cain in uh, the the histories of ancient cultures, such as the Sumerians. And that... um, and, then, and that basically the Bible story kind of points to an extraterrestrial or extra-human origin for Cain. That he may have actually been of the bloodline of the serpent of the, the fallen angels, and also that he uh, passed on his genes, and had, there was a royal bloodline descendant from him. Because uh, basically uh, witches, a lot, a lot of uh, royal witches or people from witchcraft bloodlines in Europe, consider Cain to be an ancestor. Also, there's a like I said, um, people in, in the I would say early 20th century did some research on Cain, wrote some books like L. A. Waddell was uh, one of the earlier sumerologists who wrote about this this concept that maybe Cain was uh, one of the major figures in pre-diluvian history of the humans, and so uh, we were we were already thinking about Cain as basically an ancestor of this Grail bloodline that we were talking about, and sure enough, that's who. Um, Cocktail told us we needed to talk to, and so we uh it, it took a few days really of talking to Cocktail before we kind of gave up and realized that he was telling us to talk to someone else and that he was having a hard time communicating. but we did eventually talk to uh Kane, who he called the son or the black son and and that's when I would say things really took off because we started getting some very useful answers. Kane didn't have any problem talking to us, and we and he had a lot to say about all sorts of things
1: well if if in fact cain uh and and i've heard these accounts uh, that um, uh, cain was in fact uh, you know born from the seed of the serpent which according to i guess b- biblical tradition would make him uh you know born of satan uh, if, the right. ser- if the serpent is satan then if that bloodline continued Uh, then the Merovingians and other bloodlines in in Europe, far from being descended from Jesus, uh, in fact, would be descended from the Satanic line. Is that correct?
2: Well, that is correct, except um, I'm not necessarily precluding the uh, presence of the Jesus element also. I'm saying basically that this may be the origin of all of these royal bloodlines in human history. This is the, uh, the reason why they're thought to be royal, and that, that there's no reason why that couldn't also be part of the ancestry of Jesus, and therefore part of the blood that he would have passed on if he had children as well. And um, again, I'm not, it's basically the idea is, um, instead of taking the cultural value judgments that we have in modern times and sort of trying to paste that onto events that happened in the past, just accept that these stories are telling us that there's a supernatural origin to this bloodline. Jesus is described as being very supernatural, and there's some sort of mysticism applied to his bloodline Right. right. that I think may be all part of the same story, basically. So I'm, I'm not saying it means anything really, uh, having anything to do with evil. Uh, no, I'm not saying that Jesus is evil necessarily if he uh, is in fact part of the same bloodline. It's more of it's a supernatural bloodline, and and uh, there's characters that are considered bad that came from that bloodline, and there's characters that were good that came from that bloodline. But it's it's a superhuman uh, bloodline with right. an origin beyond uh, some beyond what we 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 know.
1: So did you get any verification? I mean, how do you know that you were speaking with or communicating with Cain, uh, the Black Sun, through this uh, Ouija board? Uh, I mean, you know, we're, we're told, uh, paranormal researchers tell us that, that uh, this, um, the Ouija board, you know, can be manipulated by tricksters and, and uh, lower level spirits and so forth. How do you know? Did you get some sort of a ver- verification?
2: Well, what we got was just consistency over time, because we had numerous conversations over and over again with Kane, and he eventually referred us to Baphomet, uh, and we started talking to him as well. Um, And there was definitely different personalities and consistent uh, phraseology and sorts of messages that we would get from each one. And that, and there were things that, details like down to the way that they would move the planchette, the, the, basically the handwriting, the way they move around the letters was different for each spirit. And I would say that Cain knew things that Cain would know. Cain had information about the things we were asking about pertaining to him and his history. And Baphomet, the same thing. And we weren't, at, also the other thing is like with Baphomet, that came out of nowhere. I was not expecting to be referred to Baphomet. I know that Baphomet was a major, you know, figure in the whole story because the story of the Grail bloodline does get into the Knights Templar and, you know, Baphomet was the idol that the Knights Templar worshipped. Uh, But I, as a researcher at that time, when we were told that you need to talk to Baphomet, I had not thought about Baphomet in years. I hadn't really written anything about him. It wasn't something that was on my mind. And all of a sudden, we were told, this is, this is who you really need to talk to to get the answers. Now, and sure it, enough, it was that was exactly who I needed to talk to.
1: Well, just uh, let me just back up to Cain, because you, you, you write in, in Chapter 3 that after talking to Cain, you experienced what seemed like a quantum leap in consciousness, greater than you'd ever experienced before. Uh, what do you mean by that? Tell me.
2: I just mean that, yeah, the, the uh, metaphysical questions that I had been pondering and trying to work out for years writing about these uh, very esoteric subjects, all of a sudden everything started coming to me very easily. Not only did a lot of the um, answers that he gave me pan out, you know, I was able to research and find out that, oh, those the things that he told me seemed like they might be correct. But not only that, it, I actually was able to figure out my own stuff on my own a lot easier. Like the, the connections in my mind would just come together a lot easier. Some of the things he told us, he told us about the true story of, or at least what he calls the true story of the flood, what he, think, what he says caused it. He told us this uh, epic tale, really. It was amazing about how um, <clears throat> he was the heir to the throne of Eden, as he called it. He described Eden as being this kingdom, and that he was supposed to be the heir to what he called the throne of Adam. Um, but that there was a rivalry with his brother, Abel, and that's what really the, uh, the conflict between them was about was about who's going to inherit this throne. And he said there was literally a war that took place between him and other members of his family over the throne that was fought with swords and axes and, uh, it sounded kind of like, you know, like one of those epic battles in Lord of the Rings. I mean, that's, so sure. that's the way I imagined it as he was describing it. Right. That right. it was just this massive thing that, that ravaged the earth. And he even said at the end of it that he actually just got so angry at the rebellion, and that's what he considered it a rebellion by his own family members against what he considered to be his rightful rule of Eden. And he got so angry that he actually did some sort of magical ritual, some sort of alchemical process. That caused uh, Eden and some of the other surrounding land to become flooded. It absolutely actually collapsed underneath the waves, and that that's what caused the flood. That that is, he said that the the fall of Atlantis is the same story. That it's you know it's just a retelling of the same um, ancient memory, and uh, that he, this is what then caused him and some of the other. I guess these are the characters we remember as fallen angels. They were all um, imprisoned in the center of the earth, which is hell now, I guess, Um, as a punishment, basically, for that. He he called it the wrath of Cain, and he said that that it was all his fault. It was something he did because he was angry.
1: Interesting. Now, uh, if memory serves, uh, another important artifact— uh, aside from the Holy Grail, was the uh, the spear of Longinus, which, named after the Roman centurion Longinus, who supposedly pierced Christ's side while he was on the cross to make sure he was dead, and then the vascular bleeding indicated that he was dead. Uh, this yeah. spear contains the blood of Christ and has... Great uh, occult uh, importance, obviously. Uh, Many, many world leaders, Charlemagne, Napoleon, reportedly Himmler, used the spear in initiation rites with the SS. Uh, But wasn't the spear of Longinus supposedly forged from a meteor by a um, tubal cane? Was that a descendant Uh. of, of canes?
2: You know, we didn't talk about the Spear of Longinus at all, so I don't know what he has to say about that. I, mean, I know I've done some reading about it on my own, but <laughs> I'm not actually familiar with the, with the Tubalcain story. Where, uh, where did you uh, hear that part?
1: Uh, it seems to me I, uh, there was a book on the, uh, entitled The Spear of Destiny uh, years ago okay, uh, yes. associated with a guest that I had on the program. Uh, anyway, I didn't mean to side rail the, uh, the conversation here with that, but I just thought I was well, wondering no, if there I, might have I, been a can... connection. Listen, we'll I mean,
2: I can tell you what he, what he has to say about the uh, crucifixion, what Baphomet told us about the crucifixion. It was quite interesting if you mm-hmm. want to hear that.
1: Would love to. When we come back, we'll take a quick time out. We'll come back. Tracy Twyman, the author of Clock Shavings, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. And we are back. Uh, Tracy Twyman is with us, the author of Clock Shavings, uh, which details a remarkable 13-year journey into the supernatural in pursuit of uh, mysteries pertaining to the Holy Grail. Uh, Now, uh, we were talking about Baphomet. Uh, Now, was it Baphomet or Cain that gave you an account? It was Baphomet, an account of the crucifixion.
2: It was Baphomet. Okay. And boy, was it wild. I mean, um, I heard from the, I remember reading the Holy Blood, Holy Grail book, which is the book about the Holy Grail bloodline that came out in the 80s. It was really popular.
1: Lawrence Gardner. And they
2: said that. They have suggested, you know, maybe uh, the the reason why the bloodline is coming from Jesus, the reason why it exists, is because Jesus really didn't die on the cross, and that maybe he—that's why he was able to go and father a bloodline in France later. And but I always I thought that was perhaps not necessary. I mean, he could have, uh, you know, he could have fathered the bloodline before he died on the cross. It it doesn't really matter as far as that, that theory goes. But definitely, we decided to ask. Baphomet about the uh, crucifixion, and he had a totally different version of it than uh, than most of us are used to. So he basically said that it was Judas, not Jesus, who died on the cross, and we asked how that was accomplished. He took credit for it. He said he was he orchestrated the whole thing, and that he basically, he Baphomet as a spirit who was involved, and as a spirit had been responsible for the performing of tricks, illusions, that allowed people to think that it was Jesus on the cross instead of Judas. And that, you know, we asked why this was uh, done. Um, basically, it was some sort of, he uh, described it as being a, a, you know, a blood sacrifice. And, um, it, the, the weird thing is, this is what the the Quran says.
1: Yes, exactly. About, I was going to say uh,
2: this is this is their, their version of the crucifixion. That's it's right.
1: Actually the, which that's makes it literally
2: certain, what it says, which we didn't realize at the time.
1: But that makes that makes some sense. I mean, I, I certainly don't subscribe to that notion. I I am a Christian, not a very good one, as I've said many times. But I, I certainly believe, uh, you know, that Christ died on on the cross and was resurrected, as the Bible says. But that you would that that, that Baphomet would uh, suggest uh, that you know that there was this switching on the cross and it was Judas and as you say this is a part of the uh, the tradition in the Quran because you have pointed out uh that that Baphomet has uh perhaps islamic origins uh, himself if i can call Baphomet an, a him um uh tell me a little bit about that
2: well yeah i mean it's a, it's a mystery and no one really has figured out what the connection is yet we all know that um the Templars were accused at the time of sort of colluding with the Saracen enemy. There was rumors that they did rituals together the the secret Templar order and then uh, on the other side, there were uh, secret societies associated with the um, Islamic armies during the Crusades. One of them was called the assassins. There were some other groups also, but the theory is that well maybe they maybe it was the assassins or some group like that actually initiated the templars into some sort of uh secret mysterious belief system that may have had you know in some way been islamic or been perceived that way by outsiders i don't think it's more likely to be having been perceived that way by outsiders i don't think it's certainly uh, mainstream islam necessarily because that doesn't really match up with um the other things the templars were accused of doing i mean we don't think of islam as being uh, similar to witchcraft or Satanism. So uh, I don't know what it was exactly, but I do think they seem to have been initiated into some sort of Eastern mysteries. And uh, people at the time, like Renegar- renegade Templars who, who went uh, afterwards and, and sort of spilled the beans to other people and, and talked about the kind of rituals they were involved in. Uh, one of the things they said was that they would they would yell out the word Yala, all the time during the rituals, which is basically saying, hello, Allah. And uh, but there are other aspects of the ritual that seem more like uh, Gnostic Christianity or um, Nassim or Ophite Gnosticism. So, um, and, the, uh, and the Ophite Gnosticism, Gnosticism involves um, worshipping basically the serpent and the serpent bloodline uh, from the Garden of Eden. So... I mean, it's uh, it's quite a mystery, and this is something I'm trying to tease out in my next book, too, to sort of figure out what Baphomet may really have been for the Templars, and how does it really tie in with these supposedly Islamic-origin mysteries. But, I mean, yeah, it's, it's interesting that he told us the basically the Islamic-origin heresy of the crucifixion story. There's also this, um, this book called The Gospel of Barnabas that came out, um, has been, is thought by scholars to have actually been something forged in maybe the 1300s. But the, the implication from the author, you know, they wanted you to think it was one of the original gospels. But, uh, it, it tells the same story of the, the, uh, crucifixion, but, you know, where, where, uh, where it's Judas, Judas instead of Jesus that dies on the cross. And, um, Basically, the assumption amongst scholars is that well, it was forged in the Middle Ages, probably by someone who was sympathetic to Islam. So it's interesting that this is this is an aspect of our sort of heretical Christian past, and I, I don't think a lot of people have thought about it how you know Islamic origin heresies are you know really a part of the history of Christianity in a way.
1: Right. Right. What what was your uh, perspective going into this investigation before the Ouija boards. I mean, I mean, I know that you write about uh, esoteric history and the occult, but did you have any any notion of a of a spirit world or a belief in a spirit world? In other words, did when this started happening to you through the Ouija board, uh, were you were you frightened? Were you surprised? Or did you just assume that you would get some sort of a response? You know,
2: I I think. Really, I wasn't that surprised. I think I must have gone into it with some sort of assumption, uh, about the existence of supernatural, uh, forces. And not only that, the assumption that you can contact them. So, I think that may be why it was so easy for me. I mean, I, I'm not, I, I haven't really spent a lot of time thinking about it, not since I was very young. Uh, when I was young, I just sort of understood that this is an aspect of life. And I haven't questioned it much. And I think that that's why um, things work for me. You know, I think if you suspend your disbelief and, and you don't even have to have faith necessarily, but just <clears throat> if you stop disbelieving that something could happen, then it, it becomes possible for you. So, yeah, I, I remember at the time afterwards, after the first two sessions, just thinking, you know what? I'm not scared. When The more of this this stuff happens, the less surprised I am, you know?
1: Well, I would like sure. to hear what you learned about the apocalypse uh, when we come back, if we're, if you're good for that. Okay. Tracy okay. Twyman is with us, the author of Cla- Clock Shavings, back with more of The Conspiracy Show and our conversation right after this. Stay with us. Uh, welcome back. Tracy Twyman stays with us uh, for a few moments yet, and we're talking uh, about her latest book, Clock Shavings, the true story of the uh, ordo Lapsit exilis. And this was a, a 13-year a journey into the supernatural, uh, which began with um, her team's quest to sort of decode some of the mysteries surrounding the uh, the Holy Grail, which ultimately uh, led to a, a Ouija board session, uh, attempting to uh, contact certain uh, spirits, including French poet Jean Cocteau. Uh, this later led to communications with uh, the likes of the um, of Cain, the murderer, uh, Baphomet, the goat. And, uh, well, as we'll uh, learn, and we'll get into this as well, time permitting, Lucifer the Light Bearer and Satan himself. I mean, uh, uh, this was um, a journey that ultimately led to hell, as you uh, point out in the book.
2: Yeah, it did get really dark, and basically, uh, I don't know how it got there. You know, it just one thing led to another. I think it, or, talking to Cain was strange enough. Then we get referred to Baphomet. Baphomet is really um, sort of an aspect of Satan, I would say, or maybe Satan is an aspect of him. It's hard to say, but <laughs> but uh, we did at one point ask about the apocalypse, and the results we got there. I guess that's one of the first stances where I would say I really got kind of freaked out about who I was dealing with.
1: I would I, think. I, I did would not get freaked out
2: when I was told that he that Baphomet himself had orchestrated, you know. The, the uh, the killing of Judas on the cross that should have freaked me out but it didn't hmm. but uh, when when Mathemat starts sort of excitedly telling us about the apocalypse it really caused me to question what his uh, motivations were because well here's what he said okay when the conversation started off we we're asking about about uh, the war in heaven and how, what's the rivalry between you, you know, you as an perhaps Satan, an incarnation of Satan, uh, and God? You know, why, what's the conflict here? And first thing he said is a conflict over the love of man. And so well, it turns out, from further prompting, he says it's because God loved man, and he, Baphomet, did not love man.
1: Right, right.
2: And so uh god tried he he elaborated and said god tried to get him in the garden of eden to bow down to uh adam and he refused and he was disgusted and that's basically how the whole war started and again it turns out and i had to re- i only found this out later after researching well that's another story from the quran and um uh, again it says that uh yeah the re- the reason why lucifer fell from heaven the reason why there was a war was because uh, that God tried to get Lucifer to bow down the man, and he didn't want to. Or in the Koran, he's called Iblis. But it's the same story. And so, the conversation starts off there. And then, how did it go? It was like basically uh, he starts talking about stuff that seems like he's talking about the apocalypse. And I thought we were asking about the Garden of Eden and the fall there, and the origins of the of the conflict. And so I asked for elaboration. I was basically saying, how could you... Uh, I'm confused about the man. Aren't you talking about things happening in the future not in the past? He said, yes, now really soon. And then he starts getting, like, wanting to really talk about the apocalypse. It was kind of implied that basically the war in the Garden of Eden and the apocalypse were all part of the same process, and to him there wasn't a lot of uh, time difference there. It wasn't like
1: Sure, he exists you know,
2: outside. of thing was so far in the past.
1: He exists outside of space and time.
2: Exactly. So to him, yeah, it's all happening. It's, it's this war that's happening right now. It's always been happening, and at the same time, the the end time, as he sees it, is coming soon, and he's very excited about it. And so, and he just, uh, we asked, you know, why are you guys doing this? Why are you guys having a fight? in which the, uh, the souls of mankind hang in the balance, and he described it as a game. He said it, it's, uh, he was just trying to you know, basically get his dignity back from this, in, this embarrassing incident in the Garden of Eden, and he doesn't take it very seriously, and he thinks that at the end, he and his father, God, are going to reconcile. And uh, he described it as a game where we're the pawns, basically. And, the pawns uh, you know, and the he, prize.
1: Huh? The pawns and the prize.
2: Exactly. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's really what really freaked me out. When we started talking about that uh, hell was this place where we should we should look forward to going there. We're going to find freedom from God's rule there. And uh, Well,
1: of course. That's Satan's that's... whole game, isn't it?
2: <laughs> Is that... And we said, well, why do you... We asked, are you really trying to... Um, Trick humans into sinning so that they'll lose their souls and go to hell, just like the Christians say. And he said yes that uh, he wants to do that quote to defy God,
1: right? Right. And
2: it's just just the joy of getting one over on God. Basically, he's willing to go through all this effort to uh, to you know make us sin so that we'll end up in hell. And then he wants to not only. He's doing that. He wants us to feel good about it. He's trying to get us to uh, think that it's a, it's a good thing, and that he's spreading enlightenment, and there'll, there'll even be more enlightenment in hell once you go there.
1: Well, I mean, what so, are your family and friends Lucifer. thinking at this time, uh, Tracy? Are they not—I I don't know what your religious background is or your family's, but are, are they not concerned for your well-being? You are in communion with Satan, Lucifer.
2: You mean what was going on back then, or what now?
1: Uh, I, b- both, I guess.
2: <laughs> well, back then, I don't think anyone really knew what was going on. They just knew we were publishing this, uh, Kixotic magazine back then, and we were about to write a book. But, um, the secret society, you know, that we were running at the time, and which we ended up taking, uh, m- members from the public too, and they, uh, some of the members of the public actually joined a, a slightly higher, uh, echelon of the group and ended up taking an oath we we had all these blood oaths from from people they would like right in and like they would cut their hands and, and 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 bleed onto the paper to sign their name and they would pledge allegiance to the order and uh we didn't really even think about what we were doing at the time but basically what was going on was we were making a pact with Baphomet right. and Baphomet was asking us basically to extend the pact to all these other people and we were we created this organization that kind of Acted as an energy multiplier for all the other work we were doing and uh but th- but, as far as my friends and family, I mean outside of the order, most of them didn't know what was going on, so you know we were just the way I saw it, we were um researching a historical mystery, and the organization was there to kind of help with that research but what ended up happening basically was we got so sort of just personally involved with Baphomet and the other spirits we were talking to. And they became very, um, especially Baphomet, kind of aggressive in, in the sense that <laughs> they kept coming up with projects for me to do and stuff that I was supposed to do with the with the Order of the at Exilus to try to, I, I guess, make it uh, have more public involvement. And Uh, It just seemed like I I just had taken on so many projects and so much work to do. And I started to question it and and wonder, you know, why am I basically being a slave to this uh, spirit? And, you know, I wasn't getting much out of it at the time. I was also wondering, you know, why, what what is this leading to? All these people who are members of this group, what have they gotten involved in? And and I I kind of felt the burden of, of... You know, having basically, I don't know, not necessarily their souls, but just having the allegiance and the effort and the energy that they had put into the order and the uh, responsibility that they had given me. It was just very much weighing on my soul, you know. And and what about your
1: soul, uh, uh, Tracy? Uh, I mean, any concern uh, there for your own personal, your, your immortal soul? And what may...
2: Well, I think... You know, I mean, I grew up uh, Protestant, or that's what my family was, so there's always this little, there's a bit of a fear or trepidation there, because I, I think especially maybe the Protestant view is, well, if you do any sort of dabblings with the devil, you know, there may no, be no way out at that point. You know, you may you may forfeit your soul, and, and, and there's uh, basically no way to get it back, so... I don't necessarily believe that, but, you know, the fact that you – growing up in a household like that, being told that when you're a child, you know, it's still going to stick with you in, in the back of your mind, and uh, it's probably still there in the back of my mind, but um, –
1: But now you have confirmation I that really he's real. I've never
2: really pack signing over my soul, so I think I'm okay.
1: Okay, but now you have confirmation that he's real, right?
2: Oh, yeah, for sure. And, yeah. you know, that's uh, interesting. It's – well, see, that's the whole thing. This whole thing um, – it's interesting to me. <laughs> and that's why I never really stopped talking to the spirits or using this as a, as a, uh, a method for research. I did shut down the order, the order at um, and basically, uh, changed the sort of relationship that I have with these spirits. I, I no longer let them, uh, give me assignments and sort of push me around. But, uh, I still can go to them sometimes for insight about things that I'm researching. And I still get interesting results. And, you know, again, it's not like you just write a book based on what they say. Uh, You don't just uh, use that as your sole source of research. But I still have questions about things I'm researching, and they can uh, give me an angle that I might not have thought of before. And it's it's a wouldn't work for me to do the rest of my research,
1: you know I guess my question then would be, and again i'm I'm my bias coming obviously from a, a Christian tradition, but why would you buy into that uh, angle why would you believe if you're in communion with baphomet and and you know Lucifer why would you why would you even consider believing them
2: oh I've been giving lo- given lots of very useful information in the past I mean Um, in the the book there's a large uh, portion of it dedicated to this research I did into the origins of chess and when we asked Kane about the origins of chess he gave us all sorts of information about how it came from northern Afghanistan and the meanings of uh, of the pieces and um, what the game used to be like before it became adapted into what it is now and all that stuff panned out everything that uh, he told us that is verifiable. I was able to verify, and then you know he added some stuff about where he he says the the origin of it is is basically this game that he said is um is meant to represent that war in Eden that I told you about. That basically chess is re- recreating the war in Eden, and he said that it was a an alchemical game originally, and actually had a magical effect when you played it. It was like it was a a ritual game more than a. Hmm. A competitive game. Interesting. It's a ritual for, of killing the king, uh, or killing the, uh, the the pretender to the throne. Basically, um, the throne of Eden. Right, so right. you know, he, he told me a very interesting story. Um, well, maybe they they mix in believable. some
1: they mix in some truths, perhaps with some lies. We're almost out of time here. Let me ask you this. Uh, yes. Uh, I mean, would you re, do you renounce Satan?
2: Well, I didn't do. Any- I mean, well, I'm. Just, I'm not. Uh, it's not an allegiance to Satan. Right. Okay. It's, we're, we're, I'm just talking to spirits. It's like doing an interview with Charles Manson in at, in prison. You know, you're not. Uh, you don't have to renounce Charles Manson afterwards. It's just an interview.
1: That's that's an interesting point. Okay, granted. Uh, I, I, I like uh, the uh, <laughs> the um, the term. You know, uh, my my conversations with Baphomet panned out. I don't know if that was an intended pun or people caught that pan Baphomet. <laughs> uh, interesting. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, listen, Tracy, the, a fascinating journey. Um, wow. It, all I could say, I guess, is be careful. I mean, I I don't know. I you're playing with fire here.
2: Well, you know what, but yeah, I mean, um, I'm just, I'm adventurous still, you know, I feel like I uh, I have an inside line to something that um, a lot of people, I guess, can't get very easily, and uh, it works out for me very easily, and so I'm going to uh, keep doing it as long as it's
1: useful to me. Ultimately, but, um, Ultimately, did you get what you wanted in terms of information about the Holy Grail?
2: So, what? Yeah, I think I pretty much corrected. If you, if you research, if you read my books, uh, Merovingian Mythos, and then also Clock Shavings actually sort of uh, explains some of the un- unfinished stuff in that book. If you read those two books, Clock Shavings and Merovingian Mythos, I think you'll understand the Holy Grail in a totally different light than you've ever thought of it before. And I think that I basically put it all together as well as anyone ever has.
1: All right, well, listen, we'll allow people, uh, we won't, you know, uh, spoil it for them. We'll allow them to read Clock Shavings, which is available to book buyers, and uh, they can uh, uh, unravel the mystery as you did. Tracy, thank you so much for your time.
2: No, thank you, Richard. I appreciate it. It was a great conversation. Thanks.
1: Tracy Twyman, Clock Shavings. My website is richardserrett.com. That's your portal, not to hell, but to The Conspiracy Show. Check it out, and as always, follow the truth. Thanks for inviting me into your home. I just wanted to mention uh, this uh, program is available as an HOA. That's called a Hangout on Air. So if you want to catch the live stream on uh, YouTube, it's easy. Just go to my Twitter feed, and at the top or near the top, you'll find the tweet pertaining to the HOA, and you just click on the YouTube link, and you are in. And uh, you can see me here in the studio and uh, check out my new glasses and give me a thumbs up or a thumbs down. <laughs> uh, while you're on the Twitter feed at Richard sert please follow Uh, Follow and uh, say hi. Uh, And if you're watching the live stream, I'd love to hear from you. Email me at theconspiracyshow1 at gmail.com. And the other way of contacting me, of course, is through the website, RichardSerrett.com, and the contact page. Uh, uh, Speaking of the website, RichardSerrett.com, Albert the Intern has posted some great stories in the highlight carousel at the top of the site, uh, including uh, he's just put some YouTube video up there of the legendary Patterson uh, Bigfoot film shot back in 1967, purported to show an actual encounter with a Bigfoot. And this really, if you, don't, if you haven't seen it, where have you been? <laughs> but this is the Zapruder film of the Bigfoot uh, arena. And its authenticity has been debated and it's been studied and analyzed to death. I'd say other than the Zapruder film, uh, this is probably the most studied studied piece of film uh, in history. Uh, well, a Hollywood makeup artist, an FX artist, William Munns, has just completed an exhaustive Seven year study of the Zapruder film, and Rosemary Ellen Guiley will join us after the bottom of the hour uh, to, to discuss the William Munns investigation. Uh, Rosemary, of course, joins us uh, every month for our paranormal news roundup. That's coming up at the bottom of the hour. First, though, we're just getting into 2015. It's already de- proving to be violent and tense. Uh, of course, we had the recent terrorist shootings in Paris. Uh, we thought maybe we could peer into the crystal ball for 2015 uh, and to check out, you know, what's, what's, what's going to lie ahead. And so in, it's in, in order to do that, we've enlisted the world's leading trend forecaster, us, geopolitics, economics and technology, Gerald Salenti, the founder, director of the Trends Research Institute. Hey, Gerald, how are you? Welcome.
3: Uh, well, thanks for having me on. I'm fine.
1: 2015, uh, going to be an interesting year ahead, no doubt. I had a conversation last on Coast to Coast uh, with Stephen Quayle, and I know that the the both of you uh, from time to time will uh, write articles for King World News, which I follow religiously. And uh, Stephen has kind of a, obviously a very pessimistic view of 2015, uh, let's talk about uh, the economy and, and where you think it's it's headed. Do you see foresee a, a stock market crash or a major correction in in the months in the months ahead in
3: 2015? You know, it, it's always hard to forecast these because of one of the trends that we write about in the uh, top trends for 2015, and that is the grand manipulation. And by the way, that story is being written by Dr. Paul Craig Roberts. Yes. Well, I'm sure your listeners know, was the former Assistant Treasury Secretary under Reagan.
1: The father of Reaganomics.
3: Yeah, when, and when you look at what's going on, I mean, who would have imagined that there would be such a thing as quantitative easing? And then to make it worse, I mean, we have interest rates now. They have not raised interest rates since 2006. So what we're saying is we, we know that the markets are rigged. This isn't a conspiracy. It's a fact. They rig the LIBOR rates, the uh, interest rates. It's a fact. They rig the forex markets, the currency markets, to the tune that are traded at 5.3 trillion a day. They're rigged. It's a fact. I mean, nobody goes to jail. They get fines, and you know, they go on and everything's fine. And we know, of course, they're they're manipulating gold prices as well with their naked shorts. As demand for gold is going up, physical gold. They're shorting it on the market to drive the price down. So to answer your question, all the indicators are in place where we should see some type of equity panic in 2015. And that's what I also said on King World News uh, just yesterday, that this looks like the year it's going to happen. And the reason is, it's a Ponzi scheme. And eventually... Ponzi can't pay back the new people coming in because he's given all the money to paying out the people that are leaving. And so what's going on now, all with these low interest rates, all of the quantitative easing, the world is in a slowdown. And you're seeing it with commodity prices. I mean, uh, a few hours ago, you know, brent and, and West Texas Intermediate, you know, they were down over 1%. So we're looking at Brent now at $49 a barrel, roughly.
1: Some are suggesting it could go to 20 What are your thoughts? It
3: will, it, well, it could because one of our other trends are dominant energy. This isn't a new It's not alternative. You're seeing dominant energies beyond wind, solar, geothermal, and biofuel taking place at a time when... Again, you see weakness in the markets. And, and staying on that, what we're saying is that this is bigger than oil. Demand is down. Iron ore is, is, is you could buy a ton of reinforcement rod in, in China, cheaper than you could buy a ton of cabbage. You see copper prices, five-and-a-half-year lows. Again, China consumes 40% of the new copper being mined each year. Not anymore. They're in a terrible slowdown. Their housing bubble is burst. A number of real estate firms are going. They, they, they're they defaulting on bonds already. And that never happens in China because they, they cover it up. So what, the cover-up can't, again, going back to Ponzi and going back to panic. The way it's shaping out and you put geopolitical events on top of it 2015 is the year that you better hold on to your cash, know where it is, have in your possession, because there can also be a bank holiday. And you just saw what happened with, in France.
1: You horrible, saw, horrible situation.
3: You saw two guys kill 12, 14, 16 people, and an entire nation shuts down. Now, just think if there's a, a terrorist strike in the United States... False flag or real. Remember, when they had the Boston Marathon bombing, they made people stay in their homes, and they closed down an area, what, about 50 miles, 100 miles around Boston. You couldn't take a train from New York to Boston. So what I'm saying is, with the markets in such a volatile position, they may use any excuse that they could come up with for a bank holiday, we're closing the banks to protect the American people from the treacherous acts caused by these vicious people. And, and then you get your money back when they finally open it up, and they'll devalue it. Just like they did back in 1933, when they made people turn in their gold because the dollar was backed by gold. You could bring in your worthless paper and get gold for it back then. That's why there was a bank run. And you were getting like, I think it was $20.62 an ounce. That's what the dollar was pegged to gold at. After they stole everybody's gold, they raised the price of gold to $35 an ounce, which means that you just lost 70% of your purchasing power. So when I say that, yeah, the cards look like panic, and you better know where your dough is, because that's the kind of thing that could happen, and if you don't believe me, I'm one of the guys that got screwed by MF Global, by John the Slime Corzine, going into my regulated account and stealing my money. But he's one of the white shoe boys, so he gets a free ride. And if you don't believe me, look what happened when they closed down Wall Street on 9-11. If you had certificates of deposit, you could not cash them in because Wall Street was closed. And I know because it happened to me. And I know when I tried getting considerable sums out of the bank, when I called the panic of 08, and I saw where things were going, they would not give me my money. And I had to put on a scene to get it. So when I say to people, you better know where your money is, and if you don't have your hands on it,
1: bye-bye. Gerald Salenti is the founder and director of the Trends Research Institute uh Gerald you you mentioned you know knowing where your money is uh what do you suggest to people uh, do, obviously uh, i'm guessing you you're going to you know suggest people have a certain holding in in physical gold and physical silver uh but beyond that and we can get back to the gold and silver in a moment i mean is it is it wise even to be in the market at this point i mean it could go higher
3: it could go higher I'm not, i don't i'm not a financial advisor i'm a trend forecaster so i don't give that kind of advice to me, the market's a rigged game, and I'll tell you why. The only reason the markets are going up is because of these record low interest rates and because of the, all of the quantitative easing. So here's the deal. You know, you're a nice guy. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. You're one of the big banks. I'm going to loan you money at 0.25%. And you can loan it out at any price that you can get. Even shaft them with these payday loans, 150, 200 percent, get what you can get. Because it's bankism, it's not capitalism. And here's the other reason the market's going up. Again, the cheap money. Merger and acquisition activity in 2014 was back to 2007 levels. And finally, more than half of the stock market rise has gone from big companies borrowing money very cheaply... And buying back their stock right. and driving the prices up.
1: So this is not based on earnings. This is not based on, on production. This is not based on uh, the usual indicators of a robust economy.
3: It's bankism and the grand manipulation. And a matter of fact, on the top, that's one of the top fifteen tre- top trends of twenty fifteen is bankism. It's a ter- term that we called four words have killed capitalism. People better grow up about it. If they could repeat the four words, they'll know what I'm talking about. Too big to fail. In capitalism, there's no such thing. In bankism, that's the way of the world. And by the way, the person that's writing that story for us in the Trends Journal is Nomi Prinz, who wrote that fabulous book, that's a huge seller, All the President's Bankers. So the game is rigged. And people ask me, you know, yeah, when you say this conspiracy, what are you talking about? He said, listen, six words have destroyed the United States. Harvard, Princeton, Yale, bullets, bombs, and banks. It's one club and you're not in it. A bunch of arrogant people with a bad attitude who think they're better than everybody else. Most of them have been on, born on third base and thought they hit a triple.
1: Ha <laughs> put. Gerald, listen, stay put. Uh, we're just going into a break. We've got about a minute here. Tell uh, people very quickly how they can subscribe to the Trends Research Journal.
3: Trendsjournal.com, trendsjournal.com, and they also can get our five-and-a-half-hour conference that we just had going over the top trends of 2015 in
1: depth. All right, back with more of my conversation with Gerald Cilente as we look at the year ahead 2015 here on The Conspiracy Show, my name is Richard Serrett. And we are back with uh, Gerald Salente, the founder and director of the Trends Research Institute. I mentioned gold and silver. Now, we've got uh, the paper market, and, and uh, perhaps you can take a moment and explain the difference between the paper and the physical market. Uh, the paper market's around twelve twenty-five U.S. an ounce. Uh, but as you pointed out earlier, the demand is huge. Uh, China, India buying gold hand over fist. Uh, where do you see gold likely to, uh, to go in 2015?
3: Here's, this was our forecast all year long. We, when gold reached around the $1,300 mark, we said it had a downside risk of 100 to $150. And we nailed it. The downside risk just, just hitting those points. It's all there. It's a matter of record. And you think of the downside risk. That's nothing. It was nothing considering where gold can go and as i mentioned all that's happened is that countries have printed digital money backed by nothing printed on nothing there's going to be a point when this collapses and gold is going to be the safe haven opportunity you know i have you know i'm a guy that you know i'm in my senior years so i put you know money i have to put money in the states i have to put it in you know i have to put it in uh, you know iras or also you know steal all my dough you know in taxes so i have to buy gold in etfs as well you know it's the only way i could do it other than buying gold and have it in possession of somebody else which is you know i don't believe in that either so that's part of the paper transaction as well the etfs But, you know, not that I want to do it, but that's the only option for me. So for me, only speaking for myself, not giving financial advice. I only buy gold. I have some silver. And I've invested in, you know, real estate, but not just traditional real estate. I own, you know, three of the most historic buildings in the United States, a 1750, a uh, 1774 Academy, and uh, 19, uh, seventeen uh, sixty three, uh, Doctor Jensen House,
1: right there on the main drag in, in Kingston.
3: Right, where we're also going to be holding Occupy Peace, and that's going to be our big movement, and it's going to be in May second, twenty fifteen, the most historic four corners in the U.S., based on the founding fathers, no foreign entanglements, Washington. You know, a real warrior, a real commander-in-chief, not one of these little boys that play golf, drive pickup trucks, and play basketball. And this is a guy in his farewell address, no foreign entanglements, and the world was at war back then, too. And so Jefferson and Franklin and Adams. So we're honoring thy founding fathers. Our, our mission is to rebuild America, bring home the troops, seal the borders, and rebuild the country rather than wasting it on war. And you can see how the war talk is going now, boy. All the flags are waving. The people are cheering. And we're going to get them ISIS's wherever they are.
1: Boy, oh, boy. We, we, just, we have such a short memory, don't we? It's terrible. I think Lincoln they, was. You know, I, sometimes I think Lincoln was wrong. You can't fool all of the people all of the time.
3: I agree with you. I agree with you. This, this, the farce that's going on now. This hypocrisy of all of these leader clowns lining up in France and and in protest. You know how many? How many? Didn't didn't France, that little guy, uh, Sarkozy, start the war against uh, Gaddafi and destabilize the entire place, kill tens of thousands of people, along with the United States and NATO, and arm the same people that now they're complaining are fighting them? Sure. Wasn't it the United States who lied the world into war, the Iraq War, which Saddam Hussein has weapons of mass destruction, and they killed over a million people in in uh, Iraq, and George Bush's war in Afghanistan? Oh, and let's not talk about the Palestinians; they don't count. Only twenty one hundred of them were killed in, in, last summer. That They're only Palestinians. That's only Gaza. That doesn't count as much as 14 Frenchmen.
1: And ISIS was trained in Jordanian bases on American-owned bases in Jordan.
3: All over, not only in Jordan, in Libya, in Syria. This is all being destabilized by the hypocrites that are shooting their mouths off now. And this whole thing about, you know, Obama coming out a couple of weeks ago with the the North Korea allegedly hacking this stupid Sony movie, and this was an expression of free speech. And now they're all shooting their mouths off again about, you know, this uh, I am Charlie, and this is about free speech. So why is it that they can have free speech? And people ask me all the time, Uh, Mr. Salenti, are you afraid of speaking out because the government may blow your brains out? Hmm. Yeah, but it's okay for them to talk about free speech. So now if it's okay to talk about free speech, then I guess it's okay to say Obama is a fraud, a disgrace to America, and so too is the rest of Congress. Because, hey, it's free speech now. They're all there championing it. And saying that, we can speak out. Say, hey, everybody, go nuts. Say what you want.
1: Well, yeah, and then, but now we have to be careful because that's the kind of language that gets us placed on no-fly uh, lists.
3: Yeah, well, no, 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 no. Now it's <laughs> legit because, no, I heard Obama, ah, man. Right. I heard him sure. say man. Sure. Free speech. Okay. They're all yelling out, this is an expression of free speech. Viva la France. Okay. Great, man. Everybody, you can say what you want now. Do any cartoon that you like. It's okay. So NASA, or NSA rather, CIA, FBI, all your surveillance guys, go away. You can't watch us anymore. No, no, we're free to say what we want. Obama is a fraud, a disgrace to America, and so too is the rest of Congress. And I'll put Bush and Clinton in that category too. Well, that's the These idea. people it, have destroyed this country.
1: But it doesn't—it doesn't seem to matter who ends up in office because it's not—it's—it's it's this illusion of choice. It's—it's the—it's the uh, it's a continuity. Of, of government. It's built into the equation. It doesn't matter if we get Jeb Bush or if you get Jeb Bush or Hillary Clinton, it's going to be the same policy. It's all about continuity that they've designed. So how are we going to, how are you in America going to change things at the ballot box?
3: We need a third party and that's the only way I could see it happening. And that's one of our forecasts by the way for 2015. The opportunity now is greater than I've ever seen it. Matter of fact, One of the ways I made my name as a trend forecaster was when I wrote the book Trend Tracking back in the mid-'80s, late-'80s. It was a Warner book, and um, i forecast that there'd be a new third party. And for some reason, I mentioned Ross Perot's name. And this is a time when nobody knew who this guy was, and it happened. The conditions now are more favorable than, than back then. Matter of fact, there's a whole great story that goes along with it. Um, John Connolly, he was the governor of Texas, sitting in front of Kennedy, of course, and got the bullet in the back. You had some great
1: conversations with uh, Mr. Connolly.
3: Yeah, I I was down there. He asked to see me two weeks before the election. And I have a photograph of me, him, and his wife, Nellie, in front of the book depository. I've seen that, yeah, It was their first time back since the assassination. So I believe that and, by the, and, the, and the part of the story is we're walking back into the Anatole Hotel. And remember, this, he becomes the Treasury Secretary under a Republican, uh, uh, Nixon, Right. And when they took the dollar off the gold standard. And he looks at me and he said, Gerald, I read your book. He said, it's a fine piece of work. And he said, I know your heart's in the right place. He said, well, you don't have a clue what's going on. And neither do the American people. Because if they did, there'd be a revolution in this country. And that was back then. And look how it's gone downhill since. Well That sort of so, echoes
1: what, uh, what President uh, George Herbert Walker Bush was overheard saying, sort of off-microphone once. And, and he said, uh, allegedly, reportedly, that if, they, if Americans knew what we were up to, we'd be hanged.
3: And hanged they should be. I want to see a war crime tribunal for Bush, for Wolf- Wolfowitz, for Romney... Uh, not Romney, Rumsfeld. Hey, might as well throw Romney in there, too. <laughs> Rumsfeld. Uh, who? the rest of the crew. Colin Powell. Colin, the perfect name for him, man, because that's all that flew through him when he lied us into that war, straight down the colon. And one after another, they should be brought up on war crime tribunal. Who knew what, when? But we, the people, why should we know the truth? It's America. Throw a K in there, boy. That's what. That's what this country's turned into.
1: So you're forca- forecasting the emergence of a third party. Will it be? Will it get it together in time for the uh, the 2016 election?
3: You know, it's a tough one, but we think it can happen. We really, really do. And um, again, the conditions have never been better. Here, I'll give you this one. Let's say, Richard, that. Um, they had an election up there in uh, Canada, <laughs> and 74% of the people stayed home. And we say, "Well, look at those Canadians, man. What kind of country is that? Well, that's what happened in the United States last year. They had an election, and 74% of the people stayed home. So the people are ready for the change. Something real. You're not going to get, get it from the Bloods and the Crips. And that, to me, is the Republicans and the Democrats. They're gangs. And I don't say that sarcastically. To get it, ooh. No. They're murderers and they're thieves. How many more people do they have to murder in the name of bringing freedom and democracy to a Muslim country near you? And how many more, many more of our dollars do they have to steal?
1: Before Do you have any, they
3: call them thieves.
1: Any thoughts on whom who might lead such a third party?
3: have no idea. And it's definitely not Rand Paul. He's a sellout, so he keeps changing. Yeah, him.
1: he's not his father, that's for sure.
3: And then, of course, he wants to declare war against ISIS. So he's a, he's a fraud. Again, another guy born on third base and thought he hit a triple. He'd be nobody, man. He'd be absolutely nobody. Jack, who's this guy from Kentucky? That people would be asking, they'd never hear of his name if if Ron Paul wasn't there before him.
1: We just have about two minutes. Uh, leave us with some something positive. I know one of the things that you love to talk about the emerging technologies, and and this is to me the saving grace. Uh, you know that I think could you know solve a lot of our problems. I don't know if it's the three D printing or, or what or what it is. But what do you but, see?
3: Well, it's it's a dominant energy. Again, think about it. We went from went from horse and carriage to automobiles. In the beginning of the automobile, that was the alternative. The, the we, had, we went from ice boxes to frigid airs, and when the frigid air came out, that was the alternative. Right now, we're on breakthroughs with new energy beyond wind, solar, geothermal, biofuel. Do you think that the United States, NATO, Canada, the rest of these countries, Australia, would be have attacked Libya and Iraq if their major export was broccoli.
1: (laughs) Not a chance. So the emergence of a... Anybody
3: will care about Saudi Arabia, Qatar, uh, United Arab Emirates, or Kuwait, if we don't need fossil fuels, oil, and gas. This is what we think is the big game changer. Again, we have an in-depth story in the Trends Journal. Look at what Toyota is doing with hydrogen you look at different companies doing different things in the breakthroughs. These are real. It's only a matter of time. As a matter of fact, to be in a world of fossil fuels in the 21st century is a pretty fossil idea.
1: <laughs> well, on that note, uh, uh, give it enough time, if there is enough time. The emergence of hydrogen energy, finally. We've been hearing about that for years. This could be the year. Gerald Salenti, the founder and director of the Trends Research Institute and uh, the website, trendsresearch.com. Gerald, always a pleasure. Stay well. Thank you.
3: Thank you, Richard.
1: Gerald Salenti. Coming up next, Rosemary Ellen Guiley and our... Paranormal news roundup right here on the Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Hey, Rosemary. Happy New Year. How are you?
4: I'm doing well, Richard, and Happy New Year to you, too. I'm getting ready for a very busy year, lots of road travel, new events, new book projects. It's going to be even busier than last year, so I'm really psyched about it.
0: Wow, and
1: we're psyched to have you right here on the program right now. Uh, I know we're nicely into 2015, but I wanted to take a quick look back at 2014 and uh, talk about some of, well, the top story, I think, in terms of uh, cryptozoology. Uh, and this has to do with a seven-year-long investigation into the, uh, I call it the Zapruder film of cryptozoology, and it, of course, is the patterson Gimley Bigfoot film. Uh, but tell me about uh, this Hollywood makeup artist, effects artist, William M- uh, Munns, and his investigation.
4: Well, he studied this film up one side and down the other, and this has probably been, uh, you so aptly put it, the Zapruder film of cryptozoology. Um, no other piece of footage has been so examined over the years. And uh, he was looking for things like natural movement. Uh, you know, if this was somebody in a suit, there would be kind of um, unnatural movements. He wouldn't be able to mimic, you know, really a creature very well. And he also found natural, con- what appeared to be natural contours to the form. Again... Um, Uh, contrasting the arguments of the skeptics that it was a person in a suit. And this was yet another uh, very important uh, analysis from an expert on this film, uh, backing it up as a genuine sighting of Bigfoot. There have been other experts who have looked at things like the the length of the gate, the swing of the arms, uh, the ratio of the form to uh, the surrounding trees, and every serious analysis of this film has come down on the side of it being genuine so this was a great development for the year
1: and and people should uh, um take note that this film was made this home movie uh and we have uh, a patterson who's on horseback uh and and where was this was this in Calif- california the film it was in shot? Northern
4: California in an area called Bluff Creek, and it was 1967. Right. So, you know, back then, people had a very unsophisticated uh uh, film uh, equipment relative to today, and also uh, very limited opportunities to doctor something up in a, in a convincing way.
1: Sure. And, and um, I mean, here we see this incredible footage of what appears to be a Sasquatch, and, and for those who have long argued, and this, this debate has been raging, uh, well, now we're, we're approaching 50 years. Uh, so this investigation by William Munns is, is very important. Uh, but for people that are out there that think that this is just somebody in a gorilla suit or something. I mean think back to those movies. I remember going to the drive in with my parents in the late sixties and there 'd be a movie about you know a gorilla has escaped from the zoo or something and and the the makeup and the uh, the outfits were pretty crude back then.
4: They certainly were, and uh, the whole idea that uh, it was a fake now we 've seen a lot of fakes in recent years and they 've been Pretty easy to spot too. They're getting more sophisticated, but back then uh, it would have been very difficult to fake something like this.
1: I've had my story producer Albert Vinzel uh, post uh, the video up on the website. If you go to RichardSerrett.com and go up to the slide carousel at the top uh, of the page there, and just wait for the uh, the, the Patterson Gimli Bigfoot film slide to come by, click on it. And uh, there you can see what we're talking about. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is with us, our uh, paranormal investigator who joins us once every month, and her website is VisionaryLiving.com. dot <clears throat> com. Now uh, we'll we'll begin this story, and we'll probably run into a break, and we'll pick it up on the other side. But I wanted to talk about this cursed forest of Transylvania story.
4: I love this story. I thought you uh, would. <laughs> billed as the most haunted forest in the world. And in Romanian, I'm not quite sure how it's pronounced, Uh, but it's in Transylvania, and it's had a very long reputation for all kinds of activity, Uh, hauntings, poltergeist effects, missing time, um, missing people, I mean, people who disappear, um, people having ill physical effects, UFO activity. Uh, apparitions and mysterious creatures of all sorts. And there are other areas. There are so many other areas around the planet like this. Uh, And it has been determined that there are magnetic anomalies uh, in this area, including uh, dead zones, places where things won't grow. And I've, I've seen this in other hot zones, too. All of these effects are a pattern that we find in intensely... Um, active areas with uh, paranormal phenomena. Have you ever been to Transylvania,
1: Rosemary? Have you been there?
4: I have. I have not been to this particular forest, but I have. uh, I did a a Dracula tour in Romania some years ago and uh, went through uh, areas in the Borgo Pass and the Carpathians and um, you know some of the areas specifically associated with the uh, uh, the Vlad Tepish and uh, Dracula legends.
1: All right, listen, I got to take a time out um, here, Rosemary. Excuse me. We'll come back on the other side. We'll continue to talk about the cursed forest of Transylvania and much more with Rosemary Ellen Guiley right here, The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. And we are back with Rosemary Ellen Guiley uh, talking about some of the uh, the paranormal news. Uh, that has caught our attention this week or this month. And we're talking about the Cursed Forest of Transylvania. Uh, and this is a region in, uh, in in Romania, Transylvania. It's an actual place. It wasn't, you know, Bram Stoker's imagination. This place actually exists. And as you were saying, this is one of the most haunted forests in the world. But there's so much going on here, so much activity. It almost sounds like the Skinwalker's Ranch where you have, you've got uh, you've got UFO activity. You've got... Uh, uh, hauntings, you've got, you know, how, howls in the in the night, uh, werewolves perhaps, who knows. Uh, is, is it, does it have anything to do, whenever you have like an old growth forest, I and mean, I believe that trees hold so much, store so much energy. Some of these trees are centuries old. Could that have anything to do with it?
4: I believe it does, Richard. Uh, trees uh, are around for hundreds of years And they, uh, from a paranormal perspective, they would absorb the energy of all kinds of things. And um, in folklore, uh, forests, especially dense and dark forests, uh, are always associated with the dangers of the unknown. People have had strange experiences and feelings in certain forests, throughout uh, the entire human history, and uh, the magnetic anomalies that have been discovered there add a lot of weight to this being a paranormal hotspot because that uh, seems to uh, create a lot of physical effects for people, including disorientation, a sense of lost time, It could even facilitate uh, being uh, suddenly um, open to um, seeing other dimensional entities, apparitions, uh, the UFO activity. Uh, I feel that these areas really are interdimensional portals. They're thin places, and uh, there's all kinds of ongoing activity uh, that bleeds from other dimensions into ours, and so people can have some very bizarre experiences.
1: Uh, people there also uh, who wander into the forest have reported extreme migraine headaches, feeling, as you mentioned, disoriented, nauseous, dizziness, having a sense of lost time, or having an unexplained sharp pain in various parts of the body. Uh, I mean, it's no it's no uh, wonder uh, that so much of our uh, sort of folklore in terms of paranormal, supernatural, you know, uh, things that go bump in the night come from this region, uh, given the, the topography there.
4: Romania has a lot of spooky areas to it, and um, it it is no surprise that it's steeped in folklore about uh, creatures like vampires and uh, werewolves and uh, dangerous uh, sorts of entities. But magnetic anomalies will create those kinds of of physical um, responses in people, and uh, we find uh, those descriptions associated with fairy wells, for example, sacred wells, um, other uh, areas like the, the Bridgewater Triangle in Massachusetts, uh, the Skinwalker Ranch that you just mentioned, um, certain parts of the southwest where people can get in, into these magnetic fields and uh, they do act upon the, the brain uh, to, and the body to uh, create a host of phenomena.
1: Uh, Now we get to uh, a favorite topic of mine, Rosemary. You and I have talked about haunted dolls. I know it's a favorite topic of yours. We talked about er one earlier this year. It was an abandoned uh, doll. It might have been even in China that was uh, supposedly cursed and left on the side of the road. Now here we we have a um, a similar story, this one in Japan, however, and uh, this is the the tale of the haunted doll of Hokkaido, uh, which is supposedly... Uh, the home of a girl's restless spirit.
4: It's, from a paranormal perspective, this is entirely plausible and possible. Dolls will absorb uh, a lot of emotional energy from people. And uh, when a child becomes very attached to the doll, as this little girl did, um, The doll can absorb a personality, emotions, a very significant imprint, and literally objects can become spirit houses. This particular doll, the story goes back to the turn of the 20th century. The doll was a gift for a two-year-old. Her older brother bought it for her. He thought she would really like it, the traditional Japanese doll dressed in a kimono, and she was very attached to it. And uh, then she became ill and uh, died, and after that the doll was haunted. So uh, her parents uh, came to the conclusion that she was actually uh, in the doll. Uh, Her spirit was attached to the doll. Well, certainly um, the phenomena demonstrate that uh, at least some very strong residues were attached to the doll and uh, that she she might have... um, you know, become attached to it herself. So uh, the, the significant factor with this doll that makes it different from other haunted dolls is the hair grows.
1: Yes. <laughs>
4: and uh, I've heard many stories of dolls seeming to be animated, moving around, making sounds, mentally talking to people. Uh, but this doll is really unique in that its hair mysteriously grows, and it grows to a certain length. And uh, the stories are that no matter how often the hair is cut, it regrows, and it's now in a temple in Japan uh, where it is on display.
1: Yeah, this is a remarkable story. In fact, I believe initially the, the doll, when it was purchased, had about, you know, it was like closely cropped shoulder-length hair, and then if you look at this picture of this, this haunted doll of Hokkaido, the hair is practically down to the doll's feet.
4: And it grows uh, down to a certain length and then seems to stop. Uh, Now, what I don't know, I have not been able to find out, is uh, how long the little girl's hair was. Uh, So the question is, uh, is the doll's hair growing to match the little girl's hair? Um, But um, initially the family put the doll in their family altar, and uh, many traditional Japanese homes have altars for the dead. And um, they're they're treated as household residents, and their furniture uh, in the houses, and uh, they are given food offerings, and uh, treated as though they are still very much a part of the family. So the the doll being put in the family altar for the dead may have uh, also contributed to the energy that still seems to cling to it.
1: Here's a story, uh, Rosemary, that broke uh, right at the end of of uh, 2014. And it was from the CIA's Twitter account. In fact, they, uh, if memory serves, the CIA uh, just started tweeting in, in 2014. Uh, and their, their first official tweet was, the CIA can either confirm or deny that this is our first tweet. Uh, and then <laughs> <laughs> at the end of, of 2014, uh, it said this on their Twitter. Reports of unusual activity in the skies of the 1950s. It was us. The CIA tweeted from its official Twitter account, again, that was uh, Monday, December, I believe, oh, that was the 29th of 2014. What do you think? The CIA basically saying that they created uh, this whole uh, UFO uh, story, as a, as, I guess it's a cover story.
4: I I think the government likes to lead UFO researchers around in circles. There's always somebody in the government or some agency saying, all that stuff that's been reported in the sky, it's just natural, it's just military, it's us. And, yes, I think that um, there have been cases where people have mistaken... Uh, perhaps experimental aircraft or even commercial aircraft for for UFOs, but that can't account for all the activity. There are too many sightings of unusual craft um, really not known to this planet exhibiting aerial maneuvers that no uh, known terrestrial aircraft can execute uh, and then, um, uh, be, you know, containing uh, beings. That seemed to be otherworldly, too. There are way too many uh, eyewitness accounts of those episodes all over the world uh, for us to be able to write it all off as uh, just another government thing.
1: Oh, I agree. Uh, I spoke with uh, a couple of gentlemen who, could, uh, uh, who were military uh, people, and uh, they, could, I, they could neither confirm nor deny uh, that they worked at Area 51, which I take as confirmation. Uh, and uh, they're with an outfit called uh, the Roadrunners, and, uh, they also took that position that the whole UFO issue was created not just by the CIA, but, uh, uh, the Office of Naval Intelligence and, and, uh, I suppose the Pentagon and so forth. And, and this actually had to do with the development of the U2 project. Uh, and that they they, they didn 't want people to be poking around and and finding out what was going on in area fifty one which had nothing to do with back engineering flying saucers or storing alien bodies, and had everything to do with uh, you know winning the Cold War and developing spy craft like the like the u two um, I mean, I, I, there, there there could be some truth to that. I mean, there a lot of the, the strange phenomena that people see in the skies around Area 51, I, I believe, are made in the good old USA. They're just a highly advanced aircraft. Uh,
4: I think that we have to take that into account. And uh, especially back in the 50s, this particular tweet uh, related to um, sightings from the 50s and even the 60s. And um, there might have been more of that sort of thing um, that could be mistaken for UFO activity. But even so, some of the early reports we have of contact uh, as well as extraordinary sightings from that era, uh, you still can't account for them all as um, naturally explained. So I I believe that our, our unexplained aerial activity is probably a bit of both.
1: I agree. That's the, that's the big question. You know, what how do you break it down in terms of the percentage? What percentage of them today here in 2015 when we find when we see these unidentified aerial craft, what percentage of them are uh highly secretive black ops uh weaponry and, and what 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 percentage of them are interdimensional or extraterrestrial? Uh and and by the way, where do you uh, sort of land in, in, in terms of the argument. Do you believe extraterrestrials are, or UFOs are, piloted by extraterrestrials or interdimensionals?
4: I consider them interdimensionals. I, I don't exclude the possibility of extraterrestrials, beings from another physical world, but I believe that our experiences are primarily interdimensional, that uh, they're attached to the Earth. They're in another dimensional space, and they come through these, uh, these interdimensional walls, weak spots in the walls, uh, such as in the areas uh, like that forest in Transylvania. Uh, so that most, most of them, I think, are interdimensional.
1: I agree with you. And, and uh, you know uh, better than most, you, you've been to a, a, a good number of UFO conferences over the years. That's such a divisive argument or a discussion uh, to have with somebody uh you can get struck uh, taken off someone 's Christmas card list in a hurry if you know if you don 't believe that they 're extraterrestrial uh,
4: people are very opinionated and uh, you find the same thing in the Bigfoot community that uh there's a very sharp line between uh, people who are convinced that Bigfoot is a physical being, a remnant from the earth 's distant past uh versus uh A minority of researchers who believe that uh, Bigfoot is an interdimensional being, too. And arguments can get pretty heated.
1: I'll say. All right. Well, it's it's always a delight to have you with us. And again, Happy New Year, Rosemary. And uh, we'll talk to you next month.
4: Thank you very much, Richard.
1: Rosemary Ellen Guiley, once again, the website, visionaryliving.com. Check it out and go to the bookstore there because, uh, well, she's only got about 50 books. (laughs) I'm sure you'll find one. well, that's it for us. My thanks to Tim Spreen, Albert Venzel, all of you for listening at home back next week with a brand new show. Hope you'll be along for the ride. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night.